0: Please turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, the title of the message today is Glorify Your Name. Glorify Your Name. And so we are actually going to finish John 12 today. And at the end of the message, we're going to take a quick look at Isaiah chapter 6. Now, if you're new to the Bible, Isaiah is a major prophet. And he wrote about 740 years before Christ. And so um, that'll make sense at the end of the message, but we are going to take a quick look at Isaiah 6, so you may wanna mark Isaiah 6 in your Bible to save some time later. Hey, how many of you guys were at Trunk or Treat on Friday night? Yeah, it was fun, wasn't it? And so um, they tell me that we had uh, approximately 3,300 people. So that was crazy. Um, that's cool, though, and... Um, You know, what's great is that uh, we had so many people who did trunks, 85-plus trunks, and we had so many people serving all day long, hours and hours and hours, uh, to make that outreach happen. So can we put our hands together right now and thank all those who did trunks and who served? And so some of you may be wondering, you know, why in the world do you do trunk or treat? You know, aren't you celebrating the devil's holiday? Well, no, we're not. Okay, how many of you guys know that we can take holidays from the culture and redeem it and make it something good like evangelistic outreach? And so that's what we did. Did you know that every single person who came in got an invitation to the church and every single person got a, a, a gospel track? And here's what I know, that when people are going through transition and trouble, that's when we're going down, they look up and, oh, that church, Right? In fact, I had somebody tell me on Friday night that uh, they were invited to our church, they put it off for months, and then they found themselves on their back in the hospital for 20 days, and guess where they were um, a few Sundays after that? Right here at Calvary, and they've been with us since. And so that's, that's, that's the method behind our madness, so to speak. And so, hey, we can redeem holidays for something good, and evangelism is a good, good thing. So again, all of you, all of you guys who helped out, thank you so much. Um, and here's, here's my encouragement for today, all right, we're going to finish chapter 12 today. What does that mean? That means that we're going to go through verses 20 through 50. What does that mean? That means we got 30 verses today, all right, and so what you need to know is that at the very end of the message, we run out of time, and I'm just going to read through verse 44 through 50, all right, because um, it's a long, it's a long uh, uh, second half of the chapter today, but Here's my encouragement. Can I be your coach here for a moment? Yes. And you guys are the team? How many quarters are in football? Fourth. But you know what happens so often in messages? People are really strong, like the Bucks on Thursday night against the Ravens. <laughs> so strong in the first quarter. I'm like, oh man, these are the old Bucks. I'm excited. Wow, look at Brady go. And then um, the other team readjusted, and it was all downhill from there. All right? So I, I know some of you guys don't know football, and you're like, what is he talking about? I gotta change my illustration sometime, okay? But... First quarter, stay with me. Second quarter, stay with me. Third quarter, team, stay with me. And fourth quarter, please stay with me. Okay, so this is a church that teaches expositionally through the Bible. That means I'm really hoping everybody has a Bible open either on your phone or a book in book form, but we teach verse by verse by verse, okay? And so in our culture, you know what our culture does? It's these quick snapshots, little tweets, little videos, just boom, boom, social media. And so our in, how many of you guys know that our attention span has so shortened in our culture? Okay, so I'm not gonna give up expositional teaching to become like the culture. Okay, I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna teach the word. So please stay with me all the way in, team through the fourth quarter today. We'll wrap it up at two o'clock today. Okay, I'm kidding, (laughs) totally kidding. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that the Spirit of God would take the word of God and speak to kids' hearts next door and big hearts here in this room. We love you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we finish chapter 12 today, you need to know that we have come to a pivotal portion in John's Gospel. And the reason why this portion is so important is because of this. The second half of John 12 marks the conclusion of Christ's public ministry. Now you may say, well, there's 21 chapters. What are you talking about, the conclusion of his? Well, it's called the Upper Room Discourse, which takes a huge chunk of John John's Gospel, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But for three and a half years, Jesus has been going around Right, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee, and some other places as well. And he's been sharing these life changing messages. He's been performing these breathtaking miracles. And what you need to know is that today, that's all gonna end. Next week, as we get into chapter 13, there's gonna be a transition. There's gonna be a transition from his public ministry to the people to his private ministry to his disciples. In chapter 13 next week, we're actually gonna follow Jesus to an upper room in Jerusalem. And we're gonna see that he's going to share and eat the last supper with his disciples. And then he's gonna wash their feet. And then he's gonna share with them a private message to help prepare them for the future. How many of you guys have a red letter edition of the New Testament? Raise your hand if you have a red letter edition. All right, so right now, just turn over a page or two to the right. And here's what you're going to see. You're going to see a sea of red, right? Chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, red letters everywhere. And the content of those chapters is what's known as the upper room discourse. It's a gem. By the way, that discourse, of course, if you're new to the Bible, the words of Christ are in red, okay? And so that discourse, that teaching, that private message to his disciples that is unique to John's Gospel. So the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke doesn't contain the upper room discourse, John does. Sometimes we wonder why did the Holy Spirit inspire four Gospels. Well this is one of the many reasons why, because we get to, in the coming weeks, go through uh, the upper room discourse that contains a lot of Jesus' most beloved teachings. So personally, I cannot wait to go through the upper room discourse with you. But first, we gotta discover how the Lord wrapped up his public ministry in here in John chapter 12. And as we do that this morning, here's your main theme. The main theme of the message today is that the primary purpose of the son's ministry is to glorify his father in heaven. So right now, if you're looking at John 12, verse 20, can you say amen so I know you're there? Okay, and so now, by the way, we just kicked it off, first quarter, Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some what? Some Greeks. All right, everybody, look at me real quick. That, That needs some explaining. And so Greeks, it doesn't necessarily mean these guys were from Greece. It could mean that, but not necessarily. It could be that these guys are from, listen, any other nation other than Israel that had been what we call Hellenized. The Hellenization of Civilization, what does that mean? That means that the Greeks used to be the dominant power back in the day, but then the, Ro- the Romans defeated the Greeks. But here's the thing, the Greek culture, the Greek language, the Greek customs were so strong, they carried on into the Roman Empire. And so what, is, what language, what primary language does everybody speak in the Roman Empire? You tell me. Greek, Greek, not Latin, Greek. Right, and so um, the customs, right, that's called the Hellenization of civilization. And so these guys could be from any country that had Greek customs and spoke the Greek language. And so you have some Greeks, they're coming and seeking out Jesus. And it says now in verse 21, so these came to Philip, one of the apostles of Jesus, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Okay, verse 22, Philip really doesn't know what to do here. You know, I'm not sure if Jesus is taking Gentiles for private discussions right now, he's not sure, so he went and told Andrew. And they discuss it, we don't know what they said to each other, but Andrew and Philip then, they went and told Jesus. Jesus, there's some Greek guys, and they want to talk to you. Now, It's very interesting to me that these Greeks are at the feast of Passover, and I want you to notice in verse 20 that they came to Passover to worship. Okay, so these are not some Gentiles who were kind of tourists that are on vacation, and they're there in Jerusalem, and they're kind of taking selfies with the Jewish temple behind them. That's not the idea at all. They're there to worship. So why in the world do Gentiles, who were raised in polytheism, right, the belief in many gods, why in the world are they at the Feast of Passover in Jerusalem, which is held by Jews, who embrace monotheism? What's the deal here? What's going on in the Bible? Well, it's because these men were most likely God-fearers. And if that's a new term to you, I'll define it. A God-fearer is a Gentile who had turned away from the polytheism of the Greco-Roman world in order to embrace the monotheism of Israel. A God-fearer was a Gentile who revered Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew Bible. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, Yahweh is the one and only true God. I don't know where you're at, on the the spectrum of of theology today. Uh, I don't know if you're an atheist, I don't know if you're agnostic, I don't know if you're a believer, I I, I don't know. But but here's what I'm here to tell you today, that Yahweh is God, and he's the only God. There always has been and always will be one God. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God. Right, and, and the reason, one of the reasons we believe in one God and there's only one God is because God is infinite and you can't have two infinites, right? <laughs> you can't have two infinites because one infinite encompasses everything, okay? So there's one God and he's revealed himself in the Old Testament as Yahweh, but through the progressive revelation of the New Testament, we see that there's one God eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, And so a God-fearer is a Gentile, was a Gentile, who feared Yahweh. And in Acts chapter 10, we have a great example of a God-fearer. His name was Cornelius. Everybody remember Cornelius in Acts 10, right? And so he was a centurion, a Roman soldier. And what did he do? He turned his back on the polytheism of his culture to embrace the monotheism of Israel. He revered Yahweh, and as God drew Cornelius to himself, you need to know that God, in Acts 10, did what? He sent Peter to tell Cornelius about Jesus. And so, in Acts 10, the Holy Spirit draws Cornelius to Christ. In John chapter 12, where we are today, the Holy Spirit apparently is drawing these Greeks To Christ, why does the Holy Spirit draw people to Jesus? Here's why, 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that anybody should perish but that all should come to repentance, that's why. And so, but but why Jesus? Here's why. Because what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And that's why Acts chapter four, verse 12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Ladies and gentlemen, there's two groups of people in the world, saved and lost. What group are you in? And if you're, if you're not sure, man, listen, get Assurance today, there's no reason to get in your car and drive away today without assurance that heaven is your home and Jesus is your savior. And so, it's interesting at this point in the narrative, Gentiles are seeking for Jesus. And I believe that's a strong indication that the old covenant was coming to an end and the new covenant was about to be us- ushered in. And that excites me because of my studies in the past and understanding the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, and I just love, love, love the fact that we live in the age of grace and we are under the new covenant. Ladies and gentlemen, the new covenant has been established in the blood of the lamb who died once for all for the sins of the world. No longer killing animals every day and toward to atone for sin, know that all that is done we have Jesus as our lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and Hebrews says he died once for all. How many of you are glad that Christ didn't just die for the sins of Jews but for everybody's sins? Jesus died for the sins of the Jews. Jesus died for the sins of the Gentiles as well. And apparently these Gentiles coming to him made Jesus think about his death. Look at how Jesus responded here in verse 23. It says in verse 23, and Jesus answered them, that's Andrew and Philip, hey Jesus, there's some Greek guys outside, they wanna talk to you. Now whether or not Jesus ever talked to them, we don't know, I kinda think he did, but that's not what's important here, so John doesn't tell us what's important. Well, what's in verse 23? (laughs) Okay, and so in verse 23, Jesus answered them, and I want you guys to please say the next two words. Go ahead. The hour, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. All right, so before in John's Gospel, we see over and over that the Lord's hour had not yet come, right? Over and over, we've seen it. The hour hasn't come yet. The hour hasn't come yet. Well, right now, the hour has finally arrived. Okay, so what hour are we talking about? We're talking about the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ back into heaven. And ladies and gentlemen, that's glorious. That, without that, we're in deep trouble. And so thank God that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ back into heaven. After Jesus died on the cross, after he was buried... After he rose from the dead, after he ascended back into heaven, here's what he did. He was victorious over sin, death, and hell. And what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he experienced once again the glory that he experienced through all eternity. The glory that he experienced before his incarnation. The glory that he experienced before the creation of the world. And Jesus here in our text, he's looking forward to getting back up there and experiencing that glory with his father once again that he used to experience. And the way I know he's looking forward to it, hold your place in John 12, turn right to John chapter 17, I'll show you. Okay, and so remember 14, 15, 16, upper room discourse, and then he ends his upper room discourse with a high priestly prayer. By the way, in that prayer in John 17, he prays for you guys. That's what I call a teaser, so you'll keep coming back in the weeks ahead to find out how in the world is Jesus praying for me? But right now, we're talking about him looking forward to receiving the glory he used to experience at the Father's right hand before creation. So if you're looking at John 17:1, say amen here. Okay, so here we go. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said... Father, what's the next two words? The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It's called the doctrine of election. I've talked a lot about it. Um, Go back and listen to other sermons where I, I talk on it. But verse three, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now look at verse four because it's the theme of our message this morning. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. But now look at verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world, what? (laughs) Before the world existed. Do you see that? Jesus didn't start when he was born of Mary in Bethlehem. In the beginning, beginning what? Beginning of the space-time material universe. In the beginning was the Word. So. Before creation was the Word, the Logos, Christ, second person of the Trinity. And the Word was with God, and the Word, and He was glorified with the Father before He was sent on His rescue mission to the earth. And so, why did Jesus come? He came to die. And He talks about His death. Go back to John 12, please specifically in John chapter 12, verse 24 now. Okay, so if you're visiting, this is just what we do. We just go verse by verse. Okay, so verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Okay, that leads you to your next point. And that is regarding the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, before I get to Friday and Sunday, um, last week um, we celebrated and we talked about the celebration in the Bible of what special days? Anybody remember? Palm. Sunday. Palm Sunday. A lot of people call this Holy Week. Okay? So you have Palm Sunday, and then Thursday night, Last Supper, and then Good Friday, his death, and then Sunday, his resurrection. You, you all know this, right? Okay, and so. What's going on here? Well, regarding Jesus' death and resurrection, as he looks to Friday, he likens himself to a grain of wheat that would fall to the ground and die, dead and buried. But really good news, on Sunday, he likens himself to that grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies, but then rises up like a wheat plant filled with kernels, risen and fruitful, And so on Friday, like a single grain of wheat, Jesus would die for the sins of the world and be buried. But how many of you guys know it doesn't end there? No, 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 Sunday's coming, and on Sunday, what happens, like a wheat plant, he rises up, and as you can see from the picture, he eventually bears much fruit. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're born again, you're part of that wheat field, because you've been given new life by Jesus Christ. You've been given a new birth by Jesus Christ. And so man, praise God, talk about glorious. For the past 2,000 years in fulfillment of the new covenant, Jesus has imparted this new, this spiritual life to multiplied millions of Jews and Gentiles from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And man, I think, man, we just need to give him praise right now for that. Put your hands together, please. And thank God for Jesus Christ, his son. I I, I do that every once in a while because, listen, most of the world right now, they're ignoring Jesus. And by God's grace and his grace alone, we get to be in a place here where we exalt him high. And so look at verse, um, let let me stop right there and just say one thing. When Christ imparts new life to somebody, I'm not talking about someone just praying a little prayer like a poem after a pastor to get fire insurance and there's no change in their life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when someone's truly born again. I'm talking about when Jesus Christ imparts new life to someone. What happens to that person? Here's what happens. All their sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, washed by the blood of the lamb. And not just that. But also, they then become a child of God. Nothing's better than that, by the way. By the way, not everybody on earth is a child of God. I understand God's the creator of all people, but listen, he's not the father of all people. You can only become a child of God if your sins are forgiven by the blood of the lamb that's when you're accepted into the family of God. And so he saves them. And I believe with all my heart in the doctrine of eternal security. I believe that the Bible teaches it over and over again. And so when someone's truly been born again, they cannot become unborn again. But here's what you need to know. You need to know that's just the beginning. Because listen, after Justification is sanctification. Justified, I've been declared righteous in the sight of God. My sins are forgiven. I'm clothed in the righteous robe of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Book of Romans. But now, guess what? The rest of my life, I'm being sanctified. That means I'm being set apart. That means I'm being made holy by the Lord. Another, another way to say it, after regeneration, there's life Transformation. Is this making sense to you guys? Therefore, when a true believer, and we're talking about a true believer here, instead of loving the self-centered life, true believers hate the self-centered life. We see that in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. All right, so in this verse, Jesus, I believe Jesus is showing the difference between the attitudes of unbelievers and believers. Unbelievers love their lives in this world. I'm talking about the self-life. They love it, love it, love it. And by loving the self-life, they reveal that their God is themselves. But true believers... Hate their lives in this world. I'm talking about hate the self life. And that reveals that the Lord is their God and God has changed their hearts and He is changing their lives as well. And so, regarding the unregenerate, the unsaved, D.A. Carson said this He said, The person who loves his life will lose it. It could not be otherwise, for to love one's life is a fundamental denial of God's sovereignty of God's rights, and a brazen elevation of self to the apogee, the word apogee there means pinnacle or zenith, and so, and a brazen elevation of self to the zenith of one's perception, and therefore, an idolatrous focus on self, which is at the heart of all sin. And so those who love their lives in this world, what do they do? They focus on the three most important people, me, myself, and I. Now in the extreme form of that, it's called narcissism, and the word narcissism comes from the Greek myth about narcissus, okay, and so Narcissus, I have a hard time pronouncing it. Narcissus or Narcissus. You say tomato, I'll say tomato, okay? Okay, so how many of you guys ever read the Greek myth about Narcissus? Anybody at all? I see some hands in the back. Yes, I see you, praise the Lord. Yes, okay. All right. So here it is in a snapshot. Narcissus, he was a self-centered guy and he fell in love with the image of his face as it reflected from a pool of water. He loved himself so much, he was so enamored with me, myself, and I, when he saw his face in that pool of water, he was like, ooh, wow, yeah, mm-hmm. Mm. Narcissus, you gotta eat, shh, shh, shh. no, go away. Hey, you need to sleep, man, no, ooh, wow. By the way, does this sound familiar, right, in our society? Mm. Right? Selfies all over social media. Can we just die to ourselves and live for Jesus Christ? This just makes me kinda sick. So he's there, right? He won't stop looking at the water, right? And what what happens to him? He dies of starvation because he can't pull himself away from the reflection of his face. Now it's true that narcissism is the extreme form of self-centeredness, but how many of you guys know that all human beings have been born with a sin nature? Everybody, right? And the way I can prove that to you is um, next time there's a, a family photo and you're in it, who's the first person you look at? <laughs> not your kids, come on, be honest, not your grandkids. It's you, how do I look there, right? That's just who we are, it's, it's, it's called the sin nature inside of it. Our sin nature is basically selfish. If you don't believe that, I've told you a thousand times, just go over to our toddler room right now, you'll see it. You take that toy away from that two year old, he's gonna punch you in the face. So don't believe the lie of humanism that our universities are teaching everybody. Man's basically good. Give me a break. Go over to the nursery. You'll see it's not true. All of us are sinners, and we're in need of a Savior. And that's why we need the new birth. That's why we need to be born again. Why? Because at the new birth, we receive a new nature, the nature of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ wasn't as selfless and he does that work inside of us. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and I'm going to be altruistic today. No. It's by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. It's a gift from God. That God gives us. And so we need to be born again and then not just born again. Yes, we're saved more born again, but then we need life transformation as we walk with Jesus Christ. And so those who love their lives in the world, right, they're all about me, myself, and I. But true believers, true believers, well, they're all about three persons as well, not me, myself, and I, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because God's changed their life. God's changed their hearts. Look at verse 26 now. Jesus, talking about discipleship here, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Wow. Now, I'll get to that in a minute, but I believe in evangelism. I believe in sharing the gospel with people so they have an opportunity to receive the free gift of eternal life through repentance and faith in Jesus and be born again. I believe it, I believe it, I believe it. But Here's what I know, if you're listening, say amen here. Conversion to Christ, that's just the beginning there's a whole life of being a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ, which is what this church is all about. We are called to help people of all ages become lifelong followers of Jesus Christ. You can't follow Jesus till you meet Jesus. Okay, so that's where evangelism comes in. But man, once you've met Jesus, verse, now I'll get to it, verse 26, what do we gotta do? We need to follow him. How do you follow him? Listen. You follow him by following his teachings. But if you're only opening the Bible once a week on Sunday, you don't even know his teachings. So how can you follow his teachings? So open up the Bible every day. You say, I don't feel like it. Who cares what we feel like? Is God worthy of our honor and praise or not? You tell me. He's worthy, right? Well, guess what? He didn't leave us in the dark. He gave us a a manual a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We just gotta open it up whether we feel like it or not. It's time for us to get out of the nursery and grow up and become what God wants us to become. And so when you think through this with me, after we get saved, right, we need verse 26 to follow Jesus, to serve Jesus, to spend time with Jesus. And as we do that, Jesus said the Father will honor us. Does anybody in the house wanna be honored by God? I do, I know we don't deserve it, but I do. And I know you do too. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, 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 For this purpose I have come to this hour. Title of the message, Father, glorify your name. By the way, quick side note, it's not in the notes, right? Quick side note, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name when his heart, verse 27, is troubled. See, anybody can praise the Lord when you got a big bank account, all the bills are paid, you're healthy, everybody's happy. But are we gonna say, Father, glorify your name when the bottom drops out and we don't have a big bank account? Things are going wrong, and people are mistreating us. See, that's what separates immature Christians from mature Christians. How do I get mature? Jesus says, Father, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctification is the maturing process of a Christian. Right here. And so, Jesus says, Father, Glorify your name. And so as Jesus is thinking about his hour, specifically his crucifixion and all that it's gonna entail, as he's thinking about his physical agony, right, standing before a group of nasty Roman soldiers, right, who are mocking him, and and they're taking a crown of thorns, bashing it on his head, then taking a reed and beating that crown of thorns into his head, As he's thinking about that, as he's thinking about the flagellum opening up his back so his back is like hamburger meat, as he's thinking about nails being pounded into his hands and his feet, as he's thinking about being lifted up between heaven and hell, half naked, so everybody can walk around and scorn him and ridicule him, as he's thinking about the blood coming off his brow, the blood coming out of his hands and feet, as he's thinking about trying to breathe because he's literally suffocating, so he's got to push himself up on his broken feet, right, in order to scratch his open back on the rough wood just to get a breath of air, as he's thinking about that, he says, my soul is troubled. But ladies and gentlemen, when he thinks about the spiritual agony of that coming Friday, which is a million times worse than the physical agony, as he's thinking about taking the weight of the sin of entire humanity into his body on the tree, and then, if you're listening, say amen here. Here's the heart of the gospel right here. And then, becoming that substitute, where he absorbs the divine wrath, just wrath of a holy God against the sin of humanity. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that so I wouldn't have to go to hell and burn forever and pay for my sins. As he did that because he didn't want us to go to hell, as he did that because he wants us to go to heaven, he says, my soul is troubled. And so, What's so amazing about this moment is that instead of rejecting the cup the father gave him to drink, he accepted it. He accepted it. Instead of saying, Father, save me from this hour, he says, Father, glorify your name. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what you call selflessness. He gives himself for the good of others. And by the way, if you're thinking right now, I don't deserve to go to hell, you need to get saved. You need to get saved, because you cannot be saved till you realize and accept that you're lost, and that you have sinned against the holy God, and that's a serious matter. Please, accept that you're lost. I had a guy last night, never met him before, he's coming to our church now, and he said to me, Pastor, don't just ask people when they've been saved, ask them, when did you realize you were lost? As soon as he said that, I said, excuse me, I'm not being, um, I'm not being rude, and I took out my phone, I, I gotta write that down, and I wrote it down on my phone. That's powerful, right, because you ask someone, are you saved, well yeah, I accept Jesus every day, right? No, 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 when did you realize you were lost? I never forget being in Tampa Stadium at a Billy Graham crusade, and ladies and gentlemen, man, the work of the Spirit, there was such conviction that came down on that entire stadium. And I was thinking, praise the Lord, right? I mean, it doesn't feel good, but thank God that sinners are realizing we need a savior. And that's when you get saved. That's when life transformation happens, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so right at the point of his son's need, because how many of you dads know that when your kid needs something, you're there for them, right? If there, if, I'm not talking about wants. I'm talking about if there's a need, dads, what do you do? You wanna be there for your son. You wanna be there for your daughter, right? This is where you say, yes, pastor. <laughs> Man. Sometimes I think we need to start a, a um another satellite church in Fort Pierce just because I want to experience what it's like for people to talk back to me because I know in that community, they love talking back to their pastor. <laughs> I'm just saying, maybe it's on my wish list for years down the road, but man, it's okay for you guys to talk back to me. Just don't throw eggs, okay? And don't get an argument with me because then we'll have to call the ushers. But anyway, right when his son needed some encouragement, the father was right there And the Father spoke from heaven. Look at verse 28b, the second half of verse 28. He says, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake and not mine. I love this. This is the third time the Father spoke concerning his son. And it was strategically placed at the beginning, middle, and end of his public ministry. And so, if you're taking notes, we'll put it on the screen. The father's voice, um, first at baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then in the middle, at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then at the end, right now, before the cross, father, glorify your name. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. In other words, every part of Jesus' public ministry, the beginning, the middle, the end, was all to glorify the Father. Everything he ever said, everything he ever did, listen, his virgin birth, his life, his miracles, his teachings, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of that was for the glory of his Father. All right, are you ready to apply this now to our lives? What does that mean to us? How many of you guys used to wear the bracelet? What would Jesus do? Right, so how does this apply to us? Here's how. We need to follow Jesus' example. We need to make sure that the purpose of our lives is to glorify God. This is what I love about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you ever heard of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, raise your hand. I wanna see our Presbyterians in the house. Okay, right. I love this about the Presbyterians. They have this thing called the Westminster Shorter Shorter Catechism. And here's the question. What is the chief end of man? And here's the answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I'm thinking like, man, that needs to be in the Bible somewhere. That is just absolutely amazing. Paul said it this way. Paul says, so whatever whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God of God, that's why we're made, that's why we exist on planet Earth, it's to glorify the Lord. You might say, I thought it was to know Christ and make him known. Well listen, that's how we glorify the Lord. But you are here to glorify God. And so ask yourself this question, is the purpose of my life to glorify the Lord? And if you wanna answer that question honestly, Look at what you do, not what you say. Because how many of you guys know Christians are really good at this? No, how you living, brother? Okay, you want to apply it. I'm just going to ask you right now, take some spiritual inventory, look back at the last seven days of your life and ask yourself this question. Be honest, you can't fake out God. Did the way I treated people in the last seven days glorify God? Did the words that I spoke glorify God? Did the way I spoke to my wife glorify the Lord? The way I spoke to my husband, the way I spoke to my kids, the way I treated my coworkers? Did what I I do in private glorify the Lord? See, there's your honest answer. Anybody can do this. Oh yeah, yeah, brother, I glorify God. No, 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 I'm asking you to look at your life. And I'm gonna do the same thing, I'm gonna look at my life as well. And listen, if you're not living for God's glory, why not make that commitment today? Today's the first day of the rest of your life. God has given you breath to breathe, that's God's grace. Okay, so glorify him till the, your last breath. Make that commitment today. I'm gonna live for the glory of God. And if some of you have bought into the lie that, oh man, if I commit my life to glorify the Lord, my life's gonna become boring and dull and I'm not gonna be happy. Can I just shoot straight with you? That's a lie from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. That is a lie. Whoever whoever in the world are you listening to We're talking about the creator and sustainer of all things. If you will commit to live the rest of your life, I don't care how old you are, if you'll commit to living the rest of your life for the glory of God, listen, put your seatbelt on, you're getting ready for an adventure. And so don't buy the lies of the world. Here's the truth. When we put Jesus first and others second and ourselves last, We experience true joy and we bring glory to God as well. That's the truth right there. If you will serve Jesus, then others, then you, that equals God being glorified in your life. And by the way, I am so grateful. I know Pastor Lee and Pastor Will, our executive pastors, we're so grateful. And I know um, Matt Wiggins, the head of school across the street, we're so, so grateful, listen, for the men and women at Calvary Port St. Lucie who serve the Lord as volunteers. And here's what I want you to know. The fact that you put Jesus first and others second, that are sacrificing your time and you're out there sweating and parking cars and greeting people and you're up here singing and playing and you're over there working with the kids and you're being a security guard. As we're looking up, you're looking back because you have our backs or you're, you're on um, safety team and you're helping people who are sick uh, during the service or um, working at the next steps table or ushering or whatever you're doing during the week because we have a lot of administrators that are Volunteering during the week, can I just say from the bottom of my heart, the bottom of the executive team's heart, the fact that you put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last, and you're glorifying the Lord here at Calvary, that was a long sentence. Thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. It's 12.06, it's halftime. times the dolphin's play. Okay. Don't let Tua be your god. I'm kidding. We're actually well into the third quarter. Look at verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You guys tell me, who's the ruler of this world? Satan. 1 John 5:19. And so since the fall, Satan has held sway over humanity. Good news, right, good news. Because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the devil has no power over the children of God. Thank God for that, no power. And please, please don't believe the lie that the devil can possess a born again Christian. Give me a break. No way, no how. And so, The person who is in Christ, who puts on the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6, will be victorious over the spiritual forces of evil. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, Christ has defeated Satan at the cross. And if you're in Christ, his victory is your victory. And so the ruler of this world has been cast out in that he has no power over the children of God and he ultimately will be cast out forever, thank God, Revelation 20, verse 10, when he's thrown into the lake of fire. So the big question is, do you belong to Christ? Because if you're not in Christ, you're open game. Are you in Christ? You say, I don't know, what do I do? Listen to the next words of Jesus, verse 32. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth. Okay, lifted up from the earth means to die. And everybody in that crowd knew it. We don't know it in our generation, but trust me, okay? Everybody knew what he was talking about. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, and I, when I die, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. And so at his crucifixion, Christ was lifted up on the cross And that at his resurrection and ascension, Christ is lifted up in glory. He's glorified. And now, what's he doing at the right hand of the Father? Well, not only is he experiencing the glory that he used to experience before the creation of the world, but he's also, by the Spirit of God, drawing all people to himself. That doesn't mean that everybody's gonna get saved in the end, no, what it means, all people means without distinction, Jews and Gentiles. And so if you're asking, what should I do? I don't know if I'm in Christ. The answer is, respond to the Spirit's drawing. Receive Christ today as your king and as the savior of your life. You will not regret it. Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law, Hebrew scriptures, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man, the Messiah, must be lifted up, must die? Who is the Son of Man, right? And so they're, they're right. Everybody look at me, they're only halfway right. They're like, Jesus, we read our Bibles, we see what the Bible says about the Messiah, the Messiah remains forever. What are you talking about, the Messiah's gonna die? Right, we know Isaiah nine. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's gonna sit on the throne of David, and it says that his kingdom will have no end. He, Messiah remains forever. What are you talking about? Messiah's gonna die. I just wish they would've kept reading from Isaiah 9 all the way to Isaiah 53. If you haven't read it, you gotta, go, you gotta read it. Written 700 years before Christ, It's all about his passion, suffering, death, and resurrection. Just keep reading. So yes, the Messiah remains forever, but he's gonna die for the sins of the world, and then he's gonna rise, and then he's gonna ascend to the right hand, and he's gonna come back and establish his kingdom, and then he's gonna bring in a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah, amen. Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light. By the way, who's the light? You tell me. Yeah. While you have the light, believe in the light so you may be sons, sons and daughters of the light. And so he's literally pleading with people to turn to him. And now John gives us a commentary about Their response, look at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs and miracles before them, they still did not believe in him. Sad, isn't it? So if a word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, so he is quoting Isaiah 53, one right now. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, now he's quoting Isaiah 6.10, he, God, has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And so for three and a half years, Jesus does all these miracles, but they still harden their hearts against him. And I just wanna say it's a very scary thing to harden your heart against the Lord. Why? Well, with pen in hand, if you don't mind marking your Bible, in verse 37, I want you to underline, did not believe in him. Did not believe in him, that's verse 37. And then in verse 39, underline, could not believe. Okay, and so when somebody, I'm talking about an unregenerate person, continues to harden their heart, here's what happens. If you're listening, say amen here. Eventually, they, there may come a point where choice is no longer an option. It's called divine judicial hardening. And regarding divine hardening, Chuck Swindoll said this. While that sounds patently unfair, right? What are you talking about, Pastor? Divine hardening. I thought God was a God of love. He is, but he's also a God of justice. And he only puts up with things for so long. And so while that sounds patently unfair, how can someone be prevented from believing and then be justly punished for unbelief? No, 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 that's the wrong idea. One must understand the nature of divine hardening. Okay, so what is it? Well, he uses Pharaoh as an example. Pharaoh chose evil. God did not choose it for him. However, the Lord did harden him. That is, God solidified his resolve to pursue evil that was deeply embedded in his heart. Pharaoh did not believe and then he could not believe. And that's a scary, scary place to be. If you wanna go deeper into this subject, because I don't have time, go to Questions. The question is, why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Just type that in at gotquestions.org and what you'll find out, that unbelievers, they have no one to blame but themselves if they pass that line of no return. By the way, if you're here today and you're convicted of sin or you're thinking about getting saved, praise God you haven't crossed the line. Please respond. Today if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. I'll say it another way. If you're listening here, say amen here. Okay, listen, listen, listen. If the phone is ringing, pick it up. Because it's not always gonna ring. It may stop. Verse 41 is a mind-blowing verse. I'm gonna take a little bit of time there and then we're gonna finish up. So Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What in the world does that mean? It's gonna blow your mind. Isaiah said these things, okay, so look at verse 39. I'm sorry, look at verse 40, quoting Isaiah 6.10, Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Christ, God has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. All right, so Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Okay, so who is this chapter all about? Whose glory? Jesus, and spoke of him. I hope right now you're thinking, time out, when did Isaiah, who lived 700 years before Christ, see the glory of Christ and speak about him? I mean, how did he do this? Well, will lead you to your next point, and that is that Isaiah had a vision of the glory of the pre-incarnate son while Christ sat on his heavenly throne. Okay, I told you we're gonna do this real quick. Turn over to Isaiah six. I'm gonna show you. You just went back in time 739 years. If you're looking at Isaiah six, verse 10, say amen. Okay, I'll wait one second so you can get to Isaiah six, 10. Okay, so make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes, hear with their hearts, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Okay, John just quoted that verse in John chapter 12, verse 40, when he saw the glory of the Lord, okay? So in the context of Isaiah 610, back up to verse one, and I'll show you how he saw the glory of the Lord. Isaiah 6.1, in the year that King Uzziah died, 739 B.C., I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who are the angels crying holy, holy, holy to? Jesus. Can we all say his name please? (laughs) Yeah, it's the pre-incarnate son. Father, glorify me with the glory we had before the world existed. Before my incarnation. Well, here it is. Isaiah had a vision of that the pre-incarnate son, while he sat on his heavenly throne. I'll say it again if I haven't said it earlier. If I said it earlier, I'll say it again. Jesus is not just a good teacher or a great prophet. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is almighty God. He is Yahweh. You guys see that? Does it make sense with you guys? All right, so. We're winding down, two minute warning. Verse 42, nevertheless, many of the authorities in Israel believed, don't get too excited and say, yay, they believed. No, 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 I have quotation marks around it because of what is said next. They believed in him for fear of the Pharisees, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. How sad is this? These leaders believed in Jesus, but you need to know that's a spurious belief. It's a fake faith, it's not real. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, if somebody refuses to publicly identify with Jesus Christ because of what people are gonna think about them, you have to wonder, is that person's faith real? This is just intellectual assent without repentance and faith. They refuse to publicly confess Jesus. Well, here's what I know. I know that a real conversion on the inside always is revealed by a public profession of Christ on the outside. Why? Because when you love somebody, you're gonna talk about that person. That's why. Okay? So listen. I ask you, are you in your life Publicly professing Jesus Christ. If not, if you're afraid because I don't know what they're gonna think about me, you gotta ask yourself, am I born again? Because if I've been born again, if I've been regenerated and I'm going through life transformation by the Holy Spirit of God, man, I'm gonna tell people about that. Okay, so you see that? All right, so a great place to publicly profess your faith is this Thursday. What's that? What's that? First Thursday, baptism time. Again, we do it every month on the first Thursday at 6.30 right here in this room. So I wanna encourage you, if you've never been, help me out, church family, baptized yes. since you received Christ as your Savior and Lord, then you need to be baptized. Infant baptism's not there in the Bible. You need to publicly profess your faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism doesn't save you. It's a public profession of an inward reality, the inward reality of the new birth. So, public ministry of Jesus Christ is gonna be over with, at the end of these words, we're just gonna read to the end of the the chapter and we'll be done. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out, why did he cry out? He knows this is it, last chance. Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me, and whoever sees me Seize him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I don't judge him. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not, re- can you see people walking by and he's yelling, he's screaming, he's crying out. The one who rejects me And does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Day of judgment. It's coming like a freight train. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me, And that's the end of his public ministry.